Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. And each week we provide an outline so that you can follow along with the message. Those that are here in person, those who are available to you at a table that's at the main doors on your way in. Those who are watching on live stream, there's a button below or next to your media player that you can obtain the, the outline. And this morning we take a break from our series in the book of Proverbs to focus on the practical implications of the event that we celebrate on this holiday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if the resurrection is real, if it's actually true, then it changes everything. One of the things that politicians seek to do as candidates is to convince voters that if they're elected, the future will be brighter. Ronald Reagan famously ran for re-election on a theme of it being, quote, morning in America. The idea being that the night is over and the bright new day has come. It's why at political conventions, when the party would announce their chosen candidate, the band would strike up, happy days are here again. It's why Bill Clinton used as his campaign theme song the words of those great theologians Fleetwood Mac, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Unfortunately, too often candidates' promises do not translate into officeholders' policies, and the hopes of their supporters are dashed. This has real consequences, because the presence or absence of hope is extremely important in determining how people behave. Hopeless people easily become irresponsible people. Living without restraint, without regard to the rules and norms of society, because after all, they reason, what does it matter? If you're concerned about the behavior of segments of people in our culture, your first concern should be that they have hope. Proverbs says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That is, when you become convinced it ain't happening, then you lose the will to carry on. But even the best of governments can only give hope temporarily because, try though they might, it simply cannot control the fluctuations of fortunes that occur when an economy tanks or war breaks out or a pandemic rages. But what we celebrate today is an enduring and transformative hope based on the assurance that all that is happening, good and bad, has meaning and is leading to a better future and so affects the way we are to live in the here and now. And so verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, verse 3, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This morning, we're going to see the implications of that truth that Jesus has raised. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming again. Let's bow together as we do. Father, we thank you again for the blessing of this day and what it represents. We thank you for changed persons the world over because of the power of the good news of the gospel message. We thank you for the reality that stands behind it. 
that Jesus came, that Jesus accomplished, and Jesus will come again. Help us now as we consider those truths and what they mean for us today. May they impact us today, next month, next year, for the remainder of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first verse that we're going to consider today is verse 13. And verse 13 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter begins with the word therefore, which means that verse 13 and the following verses is based on what precedes them in verses 1 through 12. Now, those verses 1 through 12 tell us of our privileged position if we're believers in and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tell us of what God has done for us, is doing in us and through us. And then based upon all of that, verse 13 says, therefore, this is what you should do. Now, getting that order correct is crucial to understanding the uniqueness of Christianity, the uniqueness of Christianity from all other religions. In all other religions and in some so-called Christian denominations, we do in order to receive. But in the gospel, we do because we have already received. And that's why in the Bible there are so many therefores and thens and other connecting words. It's because the Bible does not tell us what to do until it first tells us who we are. The Bible first tells us why we should do something and why we can do it And then says, therefore, now you must do this. After the instruction of verses 1 through 12, the section we're going to consider today from verses 13 to 21 has just two commands. The first of those two commands is in verse 13. It says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And then the second command is in verse 15. Be holy in all you do. And that's why your outline has just two major points centered on those two commands. First, in light of what God has done for us, as given to us in verses 1 through 12, we are to, I say in the outline, live as if God is worthy of trust. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Now, when verse 13 says, Therefore, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you, it's saying this to people who are suffering in various ways, the people to whom Peter originally wrote. The end of verse 6 in chapter 1 speaks of, quote, all kinds of trials. Their trials, the difficult circumstances they faced, may have included persecution from the Roman government, but it also included how to treat those over us in government when they are not personally worthy of respect, and how to treat employers who treat us unfairly, or how husbands and wives are to play their roles in the home, all according to chapters 2 and 3. In other words, this is written to people like you and me, who face difficulties in all shapes and sizes, but who are called to look beyond the present situation to what that situation is accomplishing and will accomplish. And this is why the word hope is used. 
Because in Scripture, our hope always has a future orientation. For example, Titus chapter 2. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait. For the future, notice the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those in the New Testament era thought that the blessed hope would be realized in their lifetimes. And so as years passed and the persecution and also the just garden variety trials beset them, they were in danger of losing that hope. And this is why Peter wrote this letter to fortify their hope by reminding them of the basis of that hope. Peter knew that apart from confidence in the future, there is no will to obey in the present. Apart from confidence in the future, there's no will to obey in the present. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who endured a, a German concentration camp during the Second World War. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he told the true but tragic tale of a fellow prisoner who lost all hope. Frankel wrote, a fairly well-known composer confided in me one day, Doctor, I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should, wish only, that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, Doctor? For me. I wanted to know when we, when our camp, would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. What did your dream voice answer? He whispered to me, March 30th. When he told me about his dream, he was full of hope. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on the promised day. On March 29th, he suddenly became ill. On March 30th, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. This hope for a better future that motivates us to obey in the present in the Bible is not a mere wish. It's not a dream. It's not based on the promise of some untrustworthy source, but rather a confident expectation based on the character and promises of of God. Verse 3 again in chapter 1 says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then if you look down at verse 21, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So when verse 13 tells us to set our hope on the grace to come, it's not asking us to do something blindly, but rather based on the absolute faithfulness and truthfulness of God, demonstrated already in the fact that Jesus has been raised. Can I trust God for the future? <laughs> Look to the past and what He has already done. And based upon that, indeed... 
And verse 21 says, your faith and your hope are in God. Faith and hope are based on the same thing. Both of them have at their base believing God. Faith and hope both have at their base believing God. Faith is believing God for the present. Hope is believing God for the future. And we are called to hope after the fact of Jesus' resurrection, 2,000 years now since the event. But what about those who didn't have the resurrection of Jesus to look back to, and yet were told to obey God based on His promises that it would come? You see, God promised that it would happen. It has now happened. And we now can have our hope based upon it after the fact. But what about people like Abraham? Abraham is considered the supreme example of faith precisely for this reason. Someone who believed because he believed God apart from the evidence that we have. God called him to a land that Abraham did not know. God made promises of descendants while Abraham was childless. And when he was up in years, a hundred for him, ninety for his wife. And yet he was still called to a life of obedience of the obedience of faith. Romans chapter 4 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it, has been said, as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And it goes on to say, Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, Abraham indeed still had good reason to believe God's goodness, as seen in creation itself. But the truth is, all people have that, but few really believe it. But we have all that Abraham had and the fulfillment of many of the promises that God gave to Abraham so that our hope is a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus. The command in verse 13 to set your hope on future grace, the grace to be brought to you. But the first part of the verse tells us how that's to be done. Verse 13 says, place your hope on this future grace that's to be brought to you. But then at the beginning of verse 13, it says, here's how it's to be, how it's to be done. With alert and fully sober minds. Have an alert mind. If you are going to be able to set your hope on this future grace, you're going to have to have now an alert mind. It means literally, when it says have an alert mind, it's literally gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> now what's, what's that? Well, friends, all that we say and do begins with what we think. And that's why there is, and always has been, a battle for the mind. And gird up your loins is battle imagery. It's saying, hike up the robe that they wore in those days to remove any restrictions of movement, remove any unnecessary entanglements. And apply that battle strategy now to your mind and ask yourself what needs to be removed and what needs to be fortified in order for us to be alert to what is true. Now, this has become 
a monumental challenge in our day, like I have never seen in my lifetime, honestly, with a bombardment of misinformation on the internet and social media. Friends, we must learn to filter information and discern the false from the true. That's why in August, I'll be doing a series called The Wisdom Pyramid to help us to do that. It's that important. But filtering out what is unnecessary or false requires a fully sober mind that verse 13 speaks of. Fully sober means self-controlled, which is, as many of you know, a fruit of the Spirit. The Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our minds are to be controlled by the Spirit, not anything else that we might use to escape what's going on in our lives. You see, friends, we need not escape because we always have hope. As we move forward in this passage, I'm going to pose some questions that we're going to come back to at the end and apply. But for now, Just thus far on what we've looked at, ask yourself this. Is Jesus alive and coming again? Is Jesus alive and coming again? And we'll see at the end what difference that should make. We are to live as if we believe God is worthy of trust. And secondly, we're to live as if God is worthy of imitation. It's said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now, God does not need to be flattered in the manipulative way that's often done, but make no mistake, He does desire and deserve to have His character extolled in His world. In fact, this is part of what it means to bring glory to God, to show God's character. We could say then that imitation is the purest means of glory. Imitating God means, I say in the outline, that we avoid all that is contrary to His character. Because verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. I've made the point a number of times over the years, but it is crucially important, I believe, that we understand that what we refrain from, what we don't do, is based on what we are seeking to accomplish. You remember that Jesus was asked, what is the greatest law, uh, commandment in the law? And many of us associate the law with things you don't do, and for understandable reasons. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image and bow before it. You shall not lie. You shall not steal, and so on. It's a lot of you shall nots. But all of that, Jesus said, is actually based on something that you're supposed to do. When they asked this teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So it's saying that we don't go there to the negative stuff because of what we are positively trying to accomplish, namely love for God and love for others. We don't go there because we're set apart to the Lord. That means a bunch of practical stuff. You can just go on about all the practical implications of that. Just a couple. 
It means that a God girl does not go after godless men because she is preparing for something else and better. Same for a God guy. You see, because when you have all you need in Christ, you don't beg. When you realize all that has been done for you, all that has been done for you in Christ, you can find satisfaction in what this good God has provided because you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. And so you reason this way, like from Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he did that, how will he not also along with him? Graciously give us all things. You see, I've got the events that have happened in the past. I know what I've been given. And therefore, with what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future, I can fully trust God with that. And so put aside anything that does not reflect His character. Willingly putting aside all that's contrary to God's character because of all that He has done and the hope that He is given, we then in turn, I say in your outline, pursue all that's consistent with His character. So you avoid, you put away all that's not in keeping with God's character. But then you pursue all that is consistent. Verse 15, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now notice verse 16 says, It is written. That's a phrase that calls our attention to the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, where it is indeed written multiple times. Just in the book of Leviticus alone, you have multiple mentions of this very phrase, be holy because I am holy, Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 20. Now what does holy mean? Holy means set apart, different. The fact that this goes back millennia to the Old Testament shows this has always been God's goal to see His character emulated in His world. In fact, this is the reason that God made us among His creatures. He made humanity alone in His image. We were made to reflect God back to Him as mirrors. God is repairing the broken mirrors that are our lives so that we are gradually being sanctified, made holy, to more accurately reflect Him. That's, as we're going to see in a moment, the goal of our salvation. Now, those of you watching on live stream don't know why I'm pausing, but I'll explain. It's because there has been a demon-possessed car <laughs> in our parking lot. That whenever I make a point, like there's a demon-possessed car, <laughs> the horn goes off. It's going off as I speak. And those who are here are having a hard time focusing their attention with alert minds, sober minds, focused minds. You all remember that piece? 
So it looks like we're going to have to put up with it. We've had several people leave the auditorium thinking, is that my car? <laughs> if that is your car, and we find out it's your car, <laughs> we will simply dub you as the owner of the demonic car. All right. It's gone off and on. It's going to continue. Let's make a deal. Can we, can, can we keep going? Really, best we can. Focus as best you can. God has set out from the very beginning to have creatures who reflect Him back to Him, who are mirrors. And that's why He made humanity in His image. And that is why now, after sin has broken the mirrors that we are, God is in a mirror repair project that is called salvation. And in the sanctification process, God is repairing the cracks that cause the mirrors of our lives to fail to reflect Him clearly back to Him. And this is the goal of our salvation, the Bible says. Romans chapter 8 those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Notice, God's goal is that we be conformed to the image. So with these two points, A and B in your outline, to avoid what's contrary to God's character and pursue what's consistent with it, you must determine if God is withholding any good thing from us. If you're going to do that, if you're going to avoid all that's inconsistent with God's character, if you're going to pursue all that's consistent with it, then you have to have first decided, hey, is God a God who withholds any good thing from me? And so ask yourself this. Does God have my best interest at heart? We'll come back to that at the end. Does God have my best interest at heart? We are to live as if God is worthy of imitation, avoiding what's not consistent with His character, pursuing what is, and I say in your outline, remember that He cares about His character. He cares about His character as shown in a couple of ways in this passage. First, He cares enough to evaluate us in verse 17. Verse 17 says, You call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Now, when we see references to God as judge and judgment in the Bible, most of us usually think of hellfire and damnation. The Bible does teach that there will be such judgment for those who reject Him. But the Bible speaks of another kind of judgment, not the fiery judgment, but rather family evaluation. I say family because verse 17 reminds us that if we belong to Christ, then God is our Father. We are in His family. And from that point on, all of his dealings with us are familial, including our future evaluation. We will not be judged for whether or not we're going to heaven, whether we're going to heaven or hell. That verdict was rendered on the cross and its application to us when we came to Christ. But we will be evaluated at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Here's what the Bible says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The prospect of that evaluation should affect how we live. And so the end of verse 17 says, 
Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You're going to be evaluated, so live now as foreigners in the world in reverent fear. In fact, this very same connection between our future evaluation and how we live is made in the same passage that we have on on the screen because it goes on to say this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then it says at the end, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So this connection between fear or reverence or, as I'm going to explain, awe of God and our future evaluation as a motivation is seen in several places in Scripture. This word fear means awe of God that places Him and His interests as top priority. And as a result, it dictates that we live as He desires. If I'm in awe of God, then I will place His interests as top priority and live as He desires. So ask yourself another question. Am I really going to stand before God? He cares enough to evaluate us, and I say in the outline, He cares enough to redeem us. To redeem us. Verse 18 begins with the word for, or because, and so it connects to verse 17. It's telling us again why we should live in reverent awe of God. Verse 18, for, because you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Now notice that the whole section that begins in verse 13 is based upon what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as recorded in verses 1 through 12. And again here at the end of the section, we're once more reminded of the awesome work of God in bringing about our salvation. It once again underscores that what God tells us to do for Him is first based on what He has done for us. And that in turn motivates us to carry it out. It's not with perishable things that you were redeemed from your empty way of life. But verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Chosen from before the creation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit planned for our salvation before the world was even made. And then, according to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son to carry out that plan that had been made before creation had even been accomplished. It is through Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross that we are redeemed. That's a term that refers to purchasing from the marketplace of sin. It's a ransom not paid by silver or gold, which perish, but with the priceless blood of a perfect lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice, one, the passage says, without blemish or defect, because He lived a perfect life prior to His death. And without the perfect life, the price he paid on the cross would have been of no value. 
And when he did die, having lived the perfect life of obedience, culminating in obedience to the Father's will that he die on the cross, after the life and death were accomplished, the Father showed his approval of all of it by raising him from the dead. And so the Bible says, he, Christ, humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, because of that obedience, because of that perfect obedience, God exalted him to the highest place. And verse 21 says, Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Your faith. Believing God in the present and your hope, believing God for the future, are based on the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and therefore He can and will come again because He is no longer in the grave. And so you live like that, like He's alive, like He really is going to come again. Christianity is based on historical facts apart from which our faith is empty. So the Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And therefore, life and its trials and death itself are experienced differently, radically differently by Christians, because we believe this is real. He really did rise from the dead. And so, the Bible says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. One last question, and we'll make application of it. Ask yourself, is the death and resurrection of Jesus real to me? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus real to me? When we do not trust and we do not imitate God, as this passage commands and as we have in your outline, when we do not do those things, we are saying He is not worthy of them. And we can put those questions that I've been asking along the way into declarations. I said, ask yourself, is Jesus alive and coming again? We can say, yeah, I believe that. But when I live in worry and anger, because of what is happening now, I betray that I don't really believe Jesus is alive and coming again. I said, ask yourself, does God have my best interest at heart? We could say, yeah, I mean, at least intellectually. But when I'm joyless in the midst of my circumstances, I betray that I really don't believe God is good. I said, we should ask ourselves, am I really going to stand before God? But when I live as though today is what matters, and I use my resources the same as those who are practical atheists, I betray that I do not believe how I live now matters to God. And I said we should ask ourselves, is Jesus' death and resurrection real to me? When I make salvation, my salvation, a thing of the past, an insurance policy that I signed a long time ago and forgot about. You all know what I mean by that? That's what so many people do. Oh yeah, I prayed a prayer way back then. That's my insurance policy. I stuck it in a drawer somewhere 
And when it's time, I'm going to pull that out. But in the meantime, it makes no difference. When I make salvation a thing of the past, an insurance policy I signed a long time ago and forgot about, but I'm glad it protects me from hell in the future, I am saying the price Jesus paid is not worth my few years on earth. Yikes. Now, we wouldn't say those things. I said them for us. We would answer all the questions in the affirmative. Yes, yes, I believe all of that. And we wouldn't say the reality when we act in these ways that betray all of that. But friends, what we won't even whisper with our lips, we say very loudly with our lives. But here's the good news. On this Easter, it need not be that way. We can and we should live consistent with all that this day represents. Because, I say in your take-home truth, God has given us every reason to live like Him, to live in a way that emulates Him. Because He lives, it makes all the difference. And so there was a song we used to sing when I was a kid growing up in my dad's church. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. Friends, we've gathered because we believe Jesus died Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, and Jesus is coming again. God calls us to say that we not only believe that, but we're going to live on that. That it makes a difference in our lives. But it all starts with believing it. And if you have already declared your belief in Jesus, then today I trust is a reminder and calling you back, like myself, to the reality of that leading us in the way we go about our lives. For those who have come to this Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, who have never trusted Christ, who have never said, I believe that, and then begun to have Him make that difference in your life, I invite you to do that. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, you do a few things. You realize that you're a sinner. Recognize what happened on the cross. And because of what happened on the cross and the life that preceded it, God the Father was perfectly pleased and showed that pleasure by raising Him from the dead. So recognize that Christ died for your sins. The only hope you have for God carrying out justice, which He must do on sin, is through the cross of Jesus. And then repent of your sins. God says, you now follow me. You go my way, not your way. You'll do that haltingly. You'll do that imperfectly, as we all do this side of heaven. But that's your desire, and that's where your feet are pointed. That's the path you are t- new path that you are taking. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray, you acknowledge your sin before Him. You acknowledge that you believe that He is the one who alone can pay for that sin. You ask Him to rescue you, save you. And say, Lord, I give you my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Let's bow before the Lord.
Father, we again thank you for the blessing of this day, this special day. Every Sunday, every first day of the week commemorates the day upon which Jesus rose from the grave, the first day of the week. And it's why your people for 2,000 years now have gathered to worship you on that day, the first day. But on this particular day, we focus on the event, the resurrection, and what led up to it, the death and betrayal and burial of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the reality that he is alive, and for the difference that it has made for millions throughout these two millennia since, for those like Abraham who looked forward to it and believed your promises before it happened. Lord, for the difference that it makes in our lives right here, those of us in this room, those of us watching on live stream who have come to believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. But Lord, we forget, we get distracted by the things of the world. Thank you from your word for reminding us to make these real in our lives in the way we live. And for those on this Easter who have never trusted you, I ask you, gracious Lord, to move upon their hearts. Cause them to see their standing before you as a sinner, apart from you, and with no remedy for that broken relationship except through Jesus Christ's life and death on their behalf. Save them, and may you be glorified through them, and we will give you the praise for doing so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.